0: Really an honor to share the pulpit with many of the great teachers have used it before. Um, and feeling the weight of it all, it brings me to my knees in prayer to start with. So let us pray. Lord, um, we just song how you, you died for us. You, you took it all for us and we don't deserve it. We are rebels, we did not want such love. And yet you came to us and you rescued us and We are so grateful for your sacrifice. That's the reason why we're here today. And it's not to play church, it's because Christ died for us sinners. You redeemed us, you brought us back. We are now the property of the Father because of you. And we are grateful for your word because by it, we know you now. And I come trembling before the word because James tells me that I'm gonna be judged more severely right now. Because I'm daring to stand up and speak your word. And so in trembling, I ask for your help, Lord. For your spirit to be upon me. For me to disappear behind the word. Let the people hear your words, oh God. Let them hear what you have to say. May my thoughts, my words, my memory even fail if need be. So only you get to talk right now. And we pray that you would, Lord. That you would change us by this word. We don't just want to be hearers. We don't just want to hear a good sermon. We don't want to to be transformed by your very hands right now, by your very spirit molded into the image of Christ. That's kind of where Paul gets at. It's it's all about Christ. And, And we know that this world needs to see more of him and way less of us. So there's a sense where this passion speaks exactly to that, Lord. So please talk to us about this. Change us according to this. Be with us, Lord, during this week and continue to just forge us into the image of your beautiful Son. I definitely need your help, Lord, and I pray. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, our dear pastor has been spending the last eight weeks trying to make us understand how our mindset, our worldview must be forged by the hands of God, Right? renewed by his word. So I don't see a better way of spending our time together than taking a big piece of the word of God, a nice big passage, like a big juicy steak that we want to cut into pieces, verse by verse, and devour it whole. And I want to look at certain concepts that we all know about and talk about, but we might misunderstand, and I think by looking at it in its context, we'll have a better view of what it's saying. Like for today, I'd like to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to turn there right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 to 10, and the thorn in the flesh. Like I said, we we know that concept. We we talk about it. But usually we talk about, what is your thorn in the flesh? What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? I don't think that's the point. I think Paul used that, or I should say God used it, to bring us to a great theological truth that kind of revolves around his grace being sufficient. And that's what we're going to get at. But well, like I said, there's a greater context we have to take into consideration. Like the fact that Corinthians had serious sin issues, division and stuff like that. And that Paul through a few epistles, probably more than two, and the help of Timothy and Titus helped to bring order in this church. We, we find, got, find out in Second Corinthians chapter seven that they did repent for many of the things except for one problem, false teachers. There's still false teachers in the church. men who present themselves as superior than Paul, Paul even calls them at some point super apostles. And these men understood the best way to destroy Paul's message is to destroy Paul himself. That's why they they attacked his character. Therefore, 2 Corinthians, for the most part, is Paul defending himself because he understands defending himself means defending his message, the gospel. So most of 2 Corinthians, it's Paul presenting himself. It's the most Paul-focused epistle that we have. And one of the things that these guys were saying is Paul is suffering because he's a sinner. He's a secret sinner even, a horrible man. This is the old mistake that even the friends of Job made. You're suffering because you're sinning. And so Paul will address that actually three times, chapter 4, 6, and 11. And he's going to say that suffering is actually a demonstration that I'm approved of Christ. He's going to say how this proves that I'm a minister of Christ because Christ also suffered. But it's not just about suffering. Suffering doesn't mean that you're approved of God. Many religions nowadays suffer. They don't mean that they're approved of God, right? Think of the Mormon when they started out in the States. Many persecuted and attacked them. Does that mean that they were of God? Of course not. So that's why Paul also talks about the work God did through him in Corinth. He's going to talk how they're living epistles of his work. A little bit after our passage, he's going to talk about these gifts of the apostles that he has, miracles he did in Corinth to show that he was of God. In our passage, Paul is going to talk about this great manifestation of God to show how he's approved of God. So he's balancing things out. Keep all that in mind as we start this little passage with verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now this verse is actually difficult to translate and I am no way an expert in Greek, so I have to put my trust in those who are. And they say that Paul really does start off by saying something like, I'm gonna boast right now, which sounds weird, out of character for Paul. But We have to understand he's been brought to this point because these super apostles keep boasting of how amazing they are, all these letters of recommendations they have, how many churches support them. And Paul says, you want boasting? I'm going to give you boasting. This is what you really like. Yet, don't miss that he says, there's nothing to be gained by it. That, yet, he still continues. Some translations will actually say, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. You want boasting? I'm going to talk about a revelation of the Lord. God showed up. Uh, that's amazing. Yet, even though we know that he's talking about himself, we have for a moment put ourselves in the shoes of those first hearers, right? Those who heard the epistle read for the first time are going to be brought into some kind of mysterious reality like we see in verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Who is this man in Christ, Paul? Who are you talking about? That's the point. Now he talks about the third heaven, and he kind of explains it in the next verse by saying, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. So, however you want to present it, third heaven, paradise, he was brought before the presence of God. He was brought in, in, in this place that we, mere mortals, have not been. This man went somewhere amazing. Keep that in mind. Now, just for one second, we'll come back in our modern shoes. Paul says it was 14 years ago. So, when was that? Well, According to the experts, again, not me, most of them say it happened a little bit before his ministry began in Acts 13. So we're talking between Acts 9 and Acts 13, this moment of preparation that he was in, that's when it happened. Now we have a little hint of this in Acts 22 when he's giving his testimony, and not just about when Christ came to him, but a bit more, and he actually says this. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, God, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now this is a possibility. We're not saying it is, it's just an interesting possibility of this is when it happened. But my point is that Paul did speak of his experiences. And I say this because many times we come to the 14 years before and we think Paul never talked about it until this moment. Paul wasn't afraid to share what God had done in his life. But like he said in the beginning, the verse one, there's not to be gained by it. That's not the point. That's not my emphasis, not the great things that happened around me. And that's where he's gonna get to more and more. But for now, he's continued the mystery. He's saying, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he's gonna repeat himself. Paul loves to do that actually. And the next verse saying, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. That's how he ends both verses. He's playing the mystery game. Who is this guy and how did he get there? Paul says, I don't know. But it was amazing. But I don't know what it was. He even gets to verse 4 and says, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Again, Paul likes to repeat himself and he's using similar language to say kind of the same thing. He's saying on one side, it was unspeakable. You can't describe it in human language, what what he saw this person. He wasn't even permitted to talk about it. That's pretty mysterious, right? This brings the audience to the edge of their seat. What's going on, Paul? What is this manifestation? What is this revelation, right? I can't tell you about it. I can't describe it. I said this should sink in a little bit because we have a lot of people nowadays who like to share the great experiences that they had. And here's Paul saying, it can't be described. I'm not even permitted to talk about it. Now some would say, all right, but John in the Revelation, again, he revealed what God permitted him to reveal. And again, also, the way he describes it, he used the language he could. Have you read the Revelation? Pretty weird. Especially when he talks about the New Jerusalem, talks about how it has 12 foundations, and one of them is transparent gold. What is transparent gold exactly? That doesn't even exist on earth. He's using language he can use. And Paul's saying this person, what he saw, what he experienced, it can't even be described. He wasn't permitted to talk about it. Like I said, let that sink in for all these people with their great testimony, putting the accent, the emphasis on, look at what I saw. Paul says, no, that's not what's important. And this is when he makes the great reveal. On behalf of this man, I will boast. When you come in English, it's me! This is like in that Scooby-Doo episode when they remove the mask and say it was Omen Roberts all along, not a real ghost. Sorry, I I watched too much TV when I was younger. But this is the great reveal. The people on their seat are sitting back in awe. What? You you went to see God? What? Yeah, that's better than these super apostles for sure yet he says but i love the buts in the bible especially but god it's my favorite one but he's another good one he says but on my behalf i will not boast i'm not going to boast about this hence we see the mysterious language they use is it's not about the experience it's not about the manifestation of the revelation i'm not going to boast about that then what are you going to boast about paul his weakness except Of my weaknesses now brothers and sisters we read the bible too quickly sometimes we read this very expression and we just keep moving on to verse 6 7 and so forth i want to talk about the thorn in the flesh and we don't realize that paul just said something pretty remarkable he says that he's going to boast glory in his weaknesses now paul don't you understand you're supposed to glory in christ alone well yes he does he's the one that says it in chapter 10 if somebody wants to glory, glory in Christ alone, is he contradicting himself right now? Especially he won't explain himself right away. We see in verse six, he won't explain himself, and we'll get there pretty quickly. And then he's going to open a parenthesis, talk about himself for a while, and you're just left saying, Paul, please explain yourself. This is like those cliffhangers at the end of a season, right? Like, no, I don't want to wait the whole summer long. I want to know what happens now. But Paul's going to leave us in suspense. He's going to just say something that weird. I'm glorying and boasting in weaknesses. And then he moves on. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. Now, if anybody can boast about seeing God do amazing things in his life, or he literally seeing amazing things, it's Paul. I'm sorry, there's a lot of people boasting about a lot of stuff nowadays. Paul is truly the man that can boast. What God did in his life, the miracles that he accomplished through Paul, It's incredible. He could boast, for sure. We're not talking about fake miracles. We're talking about some guy who did incredible things by the grace of God. Like he says, he wouldn't be a fool. That actually brings us back to those false teachers. Because he actually says in chapter 11, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. I too compared to who? Who? the false teachers. In other words, they're being fools by talking about how amazing they are. And if you want fools, I'll be a fool as well. You want some boasting? I'll give you some boasting. And that's what he does a little bit later on in the same chapter. He says, but whether anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, just in case it wasn't clear yet. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I are they offspring of abraham so am i are they servants of christ i am a better one now get this i'm talking like a madman like i'm an insane person are you getting to the point of how he's mocking their behavior yet this is where he turns the table and i find it interesting he says with great labors far more imprisonments with countless beatings enough to near death and then we get that famous list where paul talks about all his suffering shouldn't paul talk about all the churches he planted the miracles he did here to boast how he's an amazing servant of christ now he says it's about the suffering again the emphasis on the right thing at this point so like i said he's, he he says he's not being a fool if he would boast because compared to them god really did amazing things in his life like he just keeps going afterwards back in our own verse and he says if I would be speaking the truth right he would be honest And then we get another butt. But I refrain from it. Why would you not talk about it, Paul? Here's why. So that no one may think of me than he sees in me or hears from me. I don't want it to be about me and how great I am. I don't want it to exaggerate the person that I am. It's not supposed to be focused on Paul. It's not supposed to be focused about great things God did in His life. Paul says, you're not supposed to look at me and see anything other than a broken sinner in need of grace. And then he opens the parenthesis and starts out in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, puffed up, exalt myself, prideful, arrogant. And it's interesting that he really does finish the verse by saying it once again, to keep me from becoming conceited. That was a real risk for Paul. He was humble enough to realize there was that serious risk of me becoming prideful and arrogant. And I I dare ask the question, are we that humble as well? Or do we think that we're so spiritual and faithful to God that we don't have that problem? No way I would fall into pride like that. I know how dangerous that is. Paul says, no, that danger was real for me. I recognized it. And I know that's why God did what he did. Can we say that too? When things happen in our life, maybe God was keeping us humble. In our great pride and arrogance. Now, he does explain and say, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Um, he says revelations, by the way. That means it was more than one experience with God or something that he doesn't describe anywhere else. Now, we might be tempted to say, I've never had a revelation or revelations like Paul did, right? Are you kidding me? Brought to the third heaven? No way. Um, brothers and sisters, If you're a believer, that means the Father has opened your eyes and revealed his Son to you. The most beautiful Son in the Father's eye. It also means the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And that means that he's illuminated your mind so when you read the Bible, it's not just a book that people mock and ridicule. It is the living word of God. It is the mind of God. And by the Spirit, you can explore the revelation of who God is. Plus, we've all walked with God. He has revealed himself to us in so many incredible ways. We could take the whole evening just talking about all the ways he's revealed himself to all of your lives. We've had great revelations as well. Therefore, we are also in the danger of pride and arrogance and boasting. And therefore, that's why we also should consider this thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. So what is the thorn in the flesh, Martin? I'll tell you after this glass of water. I don't know what it is. Great revelation, right? And I don't think we're supposed to, although. I don't think the point here is Paul wants to try to figure out what he was suffering. Because he used really bizarre and, and, and mysterious language. He talks about thorn in the flesh. Now, a lot of our commentators are mentioning how usually when Paul talks about the flesh, he means the old man, the sinful nature, not the physical body, usually. So it'd be weird to have a thorn in the old man, in the sinful nature. And then he also talks about a messenger of Satan to harass, or King James English, Buffet, beat me. A devil was beating him, that, that's weird what Paul is describing here, because I don't think he's suppo- we're supposed to try to pinpoint what it was. Though we could associate ourselves with him and say, I know I've had stuff happen in my life where God was keeping me humble because of the danger of my own pride. And yet, that's not the point. No, God used that in Paul's life to bring him to something great. And now Paul's using it to bring the Corinthians and ourselves this morning to something great. And the first thing is it brought Paul to prayer. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Don't miss the, again, general term about this. Doesn't go into any details. it talks about pleading with God three times. Again, what did it fully look like? I mean, if it was physical pain, maybe there was moments where there was a a reprieve of the pain. Maybe you could tolerate it. Being someone who suffers of chronic pain, I can tell there's moments where you're, it's okay. And there's others when you're on your knees saying, oh, no, you got to heal me or I can't function right now. Or maybe it was all in the same moment when that, that thorn started to affect and... Right away, he just couldn't go on. And three times, he kept coming to God, coming to God right away. We don't know. What we do know is what God answered him. And that's interesting. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, brothers and sisters, take note, he didn't say no. I know we like to say that God said no, but that's not in the text. God didn't say, I'll never remove it from you. He said, I'm going to teach you something, Paul, through this. And hopefully we're going to learn it too this morning. He told them that his grace, his interference, his power at work is sufficient for you. It's all you need. Because my power is going to be brought to perfection, to completion, when you've got no more power. In other words, you're filled with the Holy Spirit when the flesh is empty. You are filled with the power of God when you have no more abilities, is what God is getting at. This is this great formula that God is giving to Paul, and hopefully it could sink in for us as well. Now, please realize it's not about the power, right? A lot of people think it's about miracle powers, therefore. Well, no, because Paul talks about this also in Second Corinthians chapter 4, and he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. It's not for a second right here. That's pretty weak, right? But he's describing right now, it's a lot of weaknesses for sure. And this is where he gets to. So that, here's the reason, the life of Jesus may also be made, manifested in our bodies. It's about Christ being shown to the world. That's what it's about. It's about reflecting the the light of the sun, S-O-N here. This is about Christ being seen as he sustains us in impossible situation. This is Paul in prison, in excruciating pain, singing to the glory of God. Not being freed. We like the freedom part when the chains break off. But it's the singing part that was sustained by God. His power was made perfect in that weakness. And that's what Paul's getting at. And that's the power he's talking about. It's not about the power itself. It's about the giver of the power. God, Christ. And that's why he continues by saying, finally, we get to the second season. Finally, we're going to find out what happened at the end of our episode. He says, therefore, considering this great truth that God put in my lap, therefore, because of that, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. This is the recap from the last season with a little extra this time around because it says more gladly. This isn't just gloomily saying, oh, I have to be weak so God is strong. And he says, I boast gladly in this. This is joyous to me to be weak because he understood what God was trying to teach him. He even explains it again, so that, here's the reason, the power of Christ may rest, may tabernacle, may really dwell upon me. Again, it's not about the power, it's about Christ. It's about the fact that, If I die, Christ lives through me. That's what Paul is getting at. That's why he finally understood about the real power and boasting. Now he's explaining why his weaknesses are so important. And now we could ask, okay, how do we apply all this, Paul? Well, he's going to tell us in the next verse. He says, for the sake of Christ. Oh, please don't miss that. For the sake of Christ, then. I am content. Now, the expression here would probably be better, uh, I, I see as good, I see as the best thing possible, these witnesses. Witnesses in the flesh, physical, emotional, spiritual. You know, when you really, really you have nothing left, and you say, it's got to be God. And he sees that as the best place for him to be. And he's got to add a bit more to the list this time around. He's going to talk about insults. And Paul knew about being insulted, that's what we have 2 Corinthians for. Now there is a difference when Paul is defending the message, therefore defending himself, and when people are speaking ill of Paul himself, and he's more willing to let it go. Think of our Lord. There are moments where he's defending the Father, but there are a lot of times where the Father is the one approving of him, therefore it doesn't matter what others say about him. That's what he's talking about. The approval of God is more important, therefore insult me all you want. Now, of course, we're not talking about being jerks and then before you being insulted. That's not the same thing. And then he adds to that one, hardships, literally neediness. We've probably all been to points like that, right? Neediness, financial or physical. That place where God has to provide, and he did. But let's be honest to say that we're happy when he does and we're finally out of that neediness, right? We don't want to stay there, Paul says that's the place I want to stay. That's the place I want to put my tent because that's where Christ is going to be with me. He adds to that one, persecution. Um, let's be honest to say that we don't know anything about persecution here, right? I know a lot of people are trying to say that the whole church being closed is persecution. Yeah, no, sorry. Not even close. If you've ever read about Christian history, that's persecution. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. That's persecution. Read about the persecuted church around the world, that's persecution. The word talks about vehement chasing something, and of course, in this context, it's to hurt. Like many countries throughout Africa, terrorists walk into a Christian village, shoot it up, grab what's left, including people, and leave the Christian to rebuild from that. And many times they have to take care of the orphans that are left behind. Or widows have to try to fend for themselves because their husbands were killed. Or husbands have to not live for themselves because their wives were taken away. And not only do they learn to love, forgive, and pray for their enemies, but they stay there wanting to be a light there knowing that they could come back. That's what Paul's talking about, staying right there. And then he puts, lastly, calamities. A word that could also be translated tribulation. What it literally means something about being crushed between two uh, opposing forces or like two walls, if you will. We've also been there, right? Where it seems like everything's pressing down against us. Like the church of Smyrna. Church of Smyrna was going through tribulations. Same word, crushed through two walls. And Christ says, good news, it's going to get worse. There's going to be a greater persecution. People are going to be put in prison and some of you might even die. But no worries, I'm waiting for you with the crown of life. That's why Paul is saying, I, I want to be here. Not to get the power of God to break the walls so that I can sustain the walls. And if He crush me, to live is gain, right? Because Christ is his life. And to die is gain because, again, Christ is his life. And that's why he, add, he ends by saying, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Because he understood now it's not about the power. It's about the true strength. God sustaining him in these impossible situations he's mentioning right now. And I love the way Brother Calvin, good old John Calvin, talks about this passage. I'm just going to take another sip before I do that. He says, The valleys are watered with rain to make them fruitful, while in the meantime the high summits of the lofty mountains remain dry let the man therefore become a valley who is desirous to receive the heavenly reign of god's spiritual grace amen brother calvin we've had those mountaintops experience right those moments where god is with us and it's amazing but we also know the danger of it becoming dry right becoming kind of religious going through the motions even falling off the edge maybe and yet we still rather stay there than in the valleys, because in the valleys it's difficult. It's painful. Yet this is where we should put our tents, because that's where God dwells. Brothers and sisters, what we brought into our living relationship with God when we were brought to an end of ourselves, right? I mean, no matter what your baggage is, your background, that you grew up in great sin or in a good Christian home, you were brought to a point where you realized, I am a sinner and he's a holy God. I cannot stand in his presence. You realize that you had a debt upon you. You had the wrath of God upon you, and you could do nothing to remove it. You could never pay this debt. That's when you fell to your knees, grabbed hold of the cross, and say, I need your sacrifice. I need your blood to wash me. I need your righteousness to cover me. I need your resurrection power to act in me so I could walk now for you. Yet, Let's be honest enough to admit, when that is done, we get up from the cross and we would run for those mountaintops because we'd rather be there than go through those valleys. I want to run through those valleys as quick as possible because I want those mountaintops. And Paul's saying, no, I want to put a big, nice tent here. I don't want to be like Peter putting a tent up there. I want to be down here where, where God is. And what I love about this text is we don't apply it by doing something. This isn't about uh, sharing Jesus to such an extent that people get frustrated with you and start insulting you. No. This isn't about being willing to live in such poverty because you give all your money away. No. This isn't about saying, I'm going to leave Montreal and go to Africa and live persecution. No. This isn't about action. It's about mindset, worldview, understanding this great truth. God's power, God's presence is in the weakness, the brokenness, the neediness. It's not just to help you get out of it, it's to help you live in it. And that's that's hard for us because we live in a, in a society that's very rich and, and filled with blessing and abundance, right? And so to, to fully grasp that kind, of, kind, of, kind of, of, of reasoning, it's hard for us. Now, Honestly, I, I, I struggled if I should share this testimony, because I didn't want the focus to be on me, but really about how God brought this text, this truth, home to me. But I will. Um, a few years ago, of course, when I lost my wife, I was really brought to a point where uh, I was really in despair, right? Broken, brought an end to myself. And... It wasn't just about the fact that I lost my wife. It was also the fact that I had been really good at burying a lot of pain, like a good little stoic, and it just came exploding in my face like a geyser. And for many days and many weeks, I was going to and from work on the train station, coming to God saying, I got nothing left to give. I want to give up. If you don't stop me, I'm taking that next step. Not only this grace keep me, it transformed me into the man I am right now. He taught me and He still teach me how this is the best place because His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, as people right now, if people right now are going through a hard time, let me tell you something. His grace will keep you in it. It might not deliver you in it, but He will keep you in it. And His power will be made perfect through it when you have nothing left to give. May this permeate our mind and strike at our heart and truly change our worldview, brothers and sisters. And on that note, let us pray. Oh, Father, you're very patient with us because we, uh, we get very influenced by the things around us, by those, those people with mountaintop experiences and incredible revelations, and we, we want some stuff too. And we forget that our Lord, he was meek and mild and broken. And he, he lived with the sinners and lived in poverty and suffered. And we want to live with him. We want to put our tents with his. So please help us to really believe that your strength is made perfect not to deliver, but to keep us. Help us, Lord, in those moments of difficulty when we don't want to keep going. We want out to understand and to really experience that you're in that tent with us right now in the valleys. May your grace truly be with the brothers and sisters going through those hard times. And like Brother Calvin said, really come and nourish them, Lord, abundantly. Your grace is sufficient. We believe that. And we pray for it, Lord, because it's in your word. We pray for it for these brothers and sisters and for ourselves. We also pray that we will really believe that to know your power, to know your sustaining grace, we gotta be weak, needy, broken, places of nothingness. That way we have all of you. Bring us to that place where we want you that much, love you, desire you. That much, Lord, that way we will really settle down in those valleys because we're going to be with the God we love. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.